Luther. As many of you uh, will already knew, know, I grew up uh, in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, uh, and so I have a deep affection uh, for my upbringing uh, and my, my heritage. Um, as you see the uh, Luther uh, painting uh, behind me that uh, was painted actually, not this, this was a, a copy, um, but it, it was done in the, in the uh, 16th century uh, and is a familiar image of, of Luther. Uh, Luther, uh, as one scholar describes, uh, is uh, or was uh, controversial, divisive, charismatic, and inspiring. We can add to that, I think, that he was courageous, at times offensive and crass, and full of life and vigor. I was once asked uh, in a question and answer at a conference after speaking on Luther, who would I rather uh, spend time with, Luther or Calvin, if I had the, uh, the choice? And, and I said, well, if I was going to go study and work on an essay in the library, I'd want Calvin with me. And if I was going out for a beer at the pub, I'd want Luther with me. It's a pretty easy choice. Uh, Luther was such an extraordinary figure. He was real. He was authentic, warts and all. And it's refreshing uh, to study his life. Uh, he was not a perfect man. He was a sinner saved by grace. And the Lord used him in an extraordinary way. And so uh, tonight, I hope we will celebrate uh, God's grace in his life and uh, God's truth through his life and ministry. Exerge Domine, arise, O Lord, and judge thy cause. The wild boar from the forest seeks to destroy your vineyard. End quote. This was the explosive opening line to Pope Leo X's papal bull concerning Martin Luther, issued at Rome on June 15, 1520. The bull enumerated no less than 41 doctrinal errors in Luther's writings. It expressed that unless renounced in the next 60 days, these errors would lead to the condemnation, excommunication, and ultimate damnation of the intrepid and incorrigible German monk. According to Leo X's bull, Luther was a raging heretic that needed to be silenced. He was tearing the church and the empire apart. The papal bull stated the following, and you can see that it does not mince words. Quote, We condemn, reprobate, and reject completely the books and all the writings and sermons of the said Martin Luther, whether in Latin or any other language. And we forbid each and every one of the faithful of either sex to read, assert, preach, praise, print, publish, or defend them. Indeed, immediately after the publication of this letter, these works, wherever they may be, shall be sought out carefully and burned publicly and solemnly in the presence of the clerics and people. As far as Martin himself is concerned, we can, without any further citation or delay, proceed against him, a true heretic, with full severity, end quote. When he received the papal bull, Luther ceremoniously threw it into the fire, recognizing the inevitable break with the corrupt church in Rome. He declared publicly, quote, You then, Leo X, the, the, the you then, Leo X, 
you, Lord Cardinals of Rome, and the rest of you there at Rome, I call upon you to renounce your diabolical blasphemy and brazen impiety. And if you will not, I and all who worship Christ shall all hold your seat as possessed and oppressed by Satan himself and as the damned seat of the Antichrist, end quote. So farewell, Luther said. Farewell, ill-fated, doomed, blasphemous Rome. The wrath of God has come over you. The exurge domine papal bull was meant to silence Luther and his followers, but instead it fueled the flames of the Protestant Reformation among everyone from the German nobility to the peasantry. The Pope's plan to discredit, condemn, and ruin Luther backfired. Luther was quickly becoming the most celebrated man in Europe, a 16th century rock star if there was ever one to be named. In the early 16th century, condemned heretics were typically given over to the secular authorities and executed to rid the land of poisonous and schismatic teaching. In Luther's case, however, he was being protected. He was being protected by Prince Frederick, the elector of Saxony and other friends in high places. Frederick would not give up his prized professor at Wittenberg. Luther, now a condemned heretic, spent the rest of 1520 writing his highly influential threefold manifesto, an address to the Christian nobility of the German nation, on the Babylonian captivity of the church, and on Christian freedom. In these three works, Luther addressed head-on, with profound clarity, important issues such as the sacraments, church-state relations, the doctrine of justification, and Christian ethics. Luther's manifesto was a one, two, three theological punch to the Pope and to the Roman Church. These works also caused no small amount of angst to Charles V, the new Holy Roman Emperor, who was trying to hold his empire together under the constant threat of invading Ottoman Turks, of course, who were Muslim. Think of it. The two great world powers, the Roman Catholic Church and the Holy Roman Empire, had one pressing priority and goal, to destroy this Augustinian monk from Wittenberg. The scene was set for one of the most dramatic showdowns in history. In 1521, Charles V invited Luther to his imperial diet or meeting at Worms. The royal invitation, which was warm and cordial, did not sound like it was being issued to an arch-heretic. This was in large part due to the power and influence of Frederick the Wise. Moreover, perhaps the emperor thought he could influence and manage Luther through a little diplomacy. Listen to the invitation given to Luther. Honorable, beloved, and devoted Luther, since we, the emperor, and the estates of the Holy Empire have proposed and decided to obtain information from you about your doctrines and books, we give you safe conduct with the desire that you should set out and that under our protection you will appear here among us and not stay away, end quote. The letter was signed by Charles himself. A safe conduct was issued by the emperor, promising essentially that no harm would come to Luther on his travels there, on his time there, and on his travel home. But this couldn't have been too comforting to the German reformer 
he knew that just about 100 years earlier, in 1415, a man by the name of Jan Hus, or Johannes Hus, was asked to come under safe conduct to share his own teachings with the ecclesiastical authorities. This was in 1415 at the Council of Constance. Emperor Sigismund offered Jan Hus a safe conduct after inviting him to explain his Reformation teaching at this council. After sharing his views, however, Huss was arrested, condemned, and burned at the stake as a heretic on July 6, 1415. Reformation historian Carlos Eyre put it this way, Luther had every reason to fear for his life. As Luther and his entourage traveled from the dusty roads of Wittenberg to Worms, they were met in every town with wild acclaim. The common people loved him. And as he entered the city of Worms, he was received with great adulation. Emperor Charles and the church officials were taken back by the massive support for Luther. They didn't expect it. There were pro-Luther signs nailed to the walls of buildings. His books were being sold in the market. Some had even written poems about him. In addition, images of Luther, like this, were being sold by local vendors. Worms was a veritable Lutherfest. The papal nuncio, Aleander, he wrote to Pope Leo about the support for Luther, saying this, quote, Nine-tenths of the people here are shouting Luther, and the rest of them shout death to the papal court. Even so, Emperor Charles V and the Roman Church were determined to discredit and demolish Luther once and for all. And so Luther appeared before Emperor Charles V and numerous secular and ecclesiastical officials for his first hearing on April 17, 1521. One can imagine the room abuzz with speculation as, how, as to how Luther would respond to the inquiry and to the immense pressure being put on him by the church and by the state. Beside Luther at the hearing was a man named Hieronymus Scherf, a professor of canon and imperial, imperial law. Elector Frederick provided sure for Luther in case there were any legal questions that might need clarification or correction. In front of Luther was a stack of 25 books, his own books, and a man named Johannes Eck, not of Leipzig fame, but the chancellor to the Bishop of Trier, asked Luther whether or not the books were his. Luther's attorney objected and asked that every title be read before he would agree to saying that they're all his. He did so, and Luther responded in the affirmative. Eck's second question underscored the fact that the emperor and his band were not interested in dialoguing with the reformer. There would be no debate. They simply wanted him to renounce his writings, or not, and if not, to orchestrate his ruin. Are you prepared to recant what you have written in these books? Luther was asked. What Luther did next was totally unexpected and perhaps even a bit of a letdown for Luther's supporters and even his enemies. He didn't answer. He asked for more time. After receiving a rebuke that he should have been prepared to answer already, he was granted one day to consider. Here we are taught that Luther was not an impetuous firebrand. He felt deeply the profound weight of the moment and the very serious implications of his answer. 
He wanted more time to seek God and to wait upon him in prayer. Imagine he is coming up against a thousand years of teaching, canon law, confessions, councils, papal statements. And so the next day, early evening, April 18, 1521, Luther stood once again in the hall before the council. The room is said to have been so packed that no one but Charles V could be seated. Luther was again asked, will you recant? Luther responded by briefly explaining that many of his writings teach basic Christian doctrine and practice. And some of them repudiate the corrupt practices of the church, which he knew that many Catholics in the room would have believed. If he were to repudiate these, he said, he would be, quote, doing nothing but strengthening tyranny. He then admitted that some of his writings were harsh and intemperate in tone. And for that, he said he was sorry. But the council wasn't interested in hearing Luther's musings and apologies. They wanted a simple answer to a simple question. Will you recant? Luther's courageous answer has inspired Protestants for 500 years. Luther responded by saying, Since your majesty and your lordship seek a simple answer, I will give it in this manner, neither horned nor toothed, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the Scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recount, recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand, I can do no otherwise. May God help me. Amen. When Luther finished, some cheered, and others said, to the fire with him. Not unlike the responses that our Lord Jesus Christ received in his public ministry and the apostles. Luther was now public enemy number one in both church and state. As he left the building, Luther is reported to have said, I am finished. After the day's meetings, Charles V gathered six of his seven electors and several other nobles to speak to them. And he said the following, quote, A lone friar whose opinions contradict the past thousand years of the Christian religion, down to our own day, must surely be wrong. Therefore, I am totally determined to commit all of my resources against him, my lands, my friends, my body, my blood, my life, and my soul. For not only I, but you of this noble German nation, who are preeminent defenders of the Catholic faith, would be forever disgraced, along with our successors, if by our negligence, not only heresy, but the mere suspicion of heresy, were to survive. End quote. A month or so later, on May 26, Charles V issued the Edict of Worms, a royal decree which declared Martin Luther an outlaw and, quote, wanted him punished as a notorious heretic, as he deserves. Enough to make most men crumble 
What pressure? What pressure? What drama? What intrigue? What a moment in Reformation history. A lowly preacher and professor of theology from a backwater town in Saxony stands up to the Holy Roman Emperor and the Pope to defend the gospel and bring Reformation to the church. It's one of the greatest narratives in history that anyone can appreciate, Christian or non-Christian. But as we reflect upon Luther's life and ministry, it's important that we are not only gripped by his adventurous times or inspired by his undaunted courage, we also need to learn from his biblical convictions, especially as it pertains to the Word of God, the gospel, and the Christian life. Indeed, if ever we needed to hear the voice of Luther on these themes, it is today, five centuries after the nailing of the 95 Theses. For we live in a broad evangelical culture that has largely lost confidence in the Scriptures, lost confidence in the Scriptures, and placed confidence in techniques and in methods that do not comport with the Word of God. We have lost confidence in the Bible. We, have, we are living in an age that misunderstands the true nature of the gospel and that fails to provide a biblical vision for the Christian life, especially as it concerns marriage and family. Luther's life and times powerfully remind us that we need to recover a high view of Scripture in our denominations and in our congregations, one that not only believes in the inspiration of Scripture, but also the authority of Scripture and the sufficiency of Scripture and the efficacy of Scripture to do what God says it will do in the lives of His elect. We need pastors who are willing to lose their jobs and, if necessary, their very lives over their commitment to biblical truth. We need to recover confidence in the means of grace, the word, sacraments, and prayer, these ordinary and effectual means that Christ himself has promised to bless for the salvation of his people. We need to recover and proclaim a proper understanding of the gospel. Too many still believe in a theology of glory, that is, that they may be saved by good works, and that the gospel is really about my happiness and well-being and not salvation from sin, Satan, hell, and death. We need to renew our commitment to and make a strong stand for biblical marriage and sexuality as we live in a world that con is confused about such matters. As we shall see, Luther brought correction to false teaching about these subjects within the church and his culture. We need to be willing to do the same no matter what the cost. Dear friends, as we hear the hammer blows on the castle church door in Wittenberg, and as we witness a defiant Luther standing alone against the great powers of Europe for the sake of Christ and the gospel, let's consider what needs to be done in our own day to stand for and even to recover biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity. What stands, we must ask ourselves, are we willing to make? Do we have the metal to stand firm if or when persecution were to break out against us? Are we ready to confess that Christ is Lord and that we believe that he is raised from the dead in our hearts? What comforts are we willing to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel? These are some of the questions that we should be asking as we reflect upon the life and ministry of this magisterial reformer. Well, 
Luther's life did not begin at Worms, of course. It began in the town of Eisleben, where he was born on November 10th, 1483, to Hans and Margaret Luther. Only a few weeks after Martin's birth, his family moved to the town of Mansfield. His father, Hans, was a miner and over time worked his way up to a manager's role. Desiring more for his son than a life in the mines, Hans Luther sent Martin to the University of Erfurt in 1501 to pursue a career in law. But God, the great disruptor of human plans, radically changed the course of Luther's life. On his way back to Erfurt, after visiting his family in Mansfield, Luther found himself, as I mentioned this morning, caught in a terrible thunderstorm. As lightning struck all around him, uh, he was terrified. His medieval Roman Catholic sensibilities quickly emerged, and he cried out, Saint Anne, save me, and I will become a monk. Saint Anne being the patron saint of minors and also a protector from the storms. To the annoyance of his father, Martin followed through on his vow to become a monk. He joined the Augustinian Monastery on July 17, 1505 in Erfurt. After 1507, Luther went through deep and searching spiritual struggles at the monastery, the so-called Anfectung. One writer described Anfectung as, quote, doubt, panic, despair, desolation, and rage rolled all into one abysmal experience, a downward spiral leading into hell itself. It's kind of like Clemson football when I think about it. <laughs> the onfectum. This is what Luther was feeling deeply in his heart. Doubt, panic, despair, desolation, rage rolled into one abysmal experience, a downward spiral leading into hell itself, which made Luther think that God had abandoned him forever. End quote. Indeed, Luther could not resolve the problem of how he, a wicked sinner, could ever be accepted or justified in the eyes of a holy God who demands perfect obedience. Heiko Obermann, by the way, if you want to read an excellent Luther biography, read Heiko Obermann, O-B-E-R-M-A-N, his book called Luther, Man Between God and the Devil, Heiko Obermann explains that Luther's, quote, restless monastic life with its intense asceticism and mortification was informed by a conviction held throughout the Middle Ages that only by striving for perfection could one even hope to exist before God, end quote. Indeed, in the Catholic monastic tradition, there was no assurance of salvation. By the way, there still isn't. There still isn't in the Roman Catholic Church. There is no assurance of salvation because you never know if you are doing enough. There's never assurance. The system doesn't allow for it. Sinners never really know where they stand with God. Why? Because in cooperation with God's grace through the ministry of the church, one never really knows if they are doing enough works to be saved. Carlos Ayer explained it this way, quote, even in its most sophisticated and erudite formulations, Catholic theology taught that salvation affected by Jesus Christ through his church on earth ultimately hinged on what one did or did not do in his life, in this life. Christ saved one from sin and damnation, yes, 
but one's behavior determined whether or not one would gain heaven or how long it might take to get to heaven from purgatory. End quote. Rome's works-based soteriology tormented Luther's conscience day and night. He never felt like he was doing enough to earn God's favor, even though in his own words, he, quote, kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkishness, it was I. And he added this, quote, all of my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear me out. If I had kept on any longer, I would have killed myself with vigils, prayers, reading, and other work, end quote. During these years, Johann von Staupitz, the vicar general of the Augustinian order in Germany, became Luther's mentor and intimate spiritual counselor. Luther said of him that if it had not been for Dr. Staupitz, I would have sunk into hell. Von Staupitz encouraged Luther to read and study the scriptures to discover God's love and mercy. But Luther again was tormented by his sins, and he frequently came to von Staupitz to confess them. In fact, Luther was so obsessive about confessing his sins that one day von Staupitz exploded and said, quote, Look here, Martin. If you expect Christ to forgive you, come in with something to forgive. Murder, blasphemy, adultery, instead of all of these small faults. End quote. But the fact is, Luther's anfectum was the fruit of taking medieval Catholic doctrine seriously. Peace with God was as elusive as it was inconceivable because it required something that Luther knew he couldn't deliver. His religious strivings would never be enough to satisfy God's righteous standards, and therefore he would always sense the clouds of divine judgment gathering over him. Not long before he died, Luther reflected upon this period of his life. He said that, quote, I could not believe that God was placated by my good works. I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemy, I was angry with God. I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience, end quote. It's a truism that the life of a monk can be overly introspective. With Luther's intense battle raging within, von Staupitz believed that what he needed most was to get out of himself. Perhaps a trip to the Eternal City, to Rome, would help him. Maybe this would inspire Luther's faith and allay his fears. So von Staupitz sent him on a pilgrimage to Rome. Rome was over 800 miles from Wittenberg, and so the trip would last for about a year of his life. In Rome, he would take care of some official business for the Augustinian order in Germany and hopefully gain a new spiritual perspective. His time there, however, was anything but encouraging. Luther witnessed the deep and vile corruption of the Roman Catholic Church. Brothels dedicated to clergymen. Reports of the Pope's numerous illegitimate children. Holy trinkets for sale on every corner. An endless stream of relics to venerate. Rome was a cesspool of idolatry and immorality. Luther referred to Rome as a wicked harlot, and he would later make Rome a regular target of severe criticism. He returned home not spiritually refreshed, but disillusioned. 
If Rome, the epicenter of the Catholic Church, could not bring him closer to God, what could? In late summer of that same year, 1511, von Staupitz sent Luther to the fairly new University of Wittenberg to study the scriptures and earn a doctorate. It was between 1512 and 1516, now a professor of theology at Wittenberg, that Luther went ad fontes, back to the fountain, back to the sources of the Bible and the church fathers, and discovered the rich treasure of truth in the scriptures as well as in St. Augustine. As Luther lectured on the book of Psalms and Paul's epistle to the Romans, his Protestant convictions began to take shape. It's hard to pinpoint exactly when Luther's heart was awakened to the gospel, when his spiritual breakthrough took place, as it were. But later, reflecting upon his breakthrough while studying the book of Romans, Luther explained that Romans 1.17 was critical. While studying Romans, Luther was still in turmoil over the question, how can wretched, wicked, rebel sinners ever be made right with the holy, righteous, trying God? In other words, if God is just and cannot overlook sin, how can unrighteous mankind be saved? Countless good works, innumerable confessions, unending penitential tears, and 10,000 lifetimes of service to God could never begin to pay the enormous debt of our guilt or produce the righteousness required by God for our salvation. This being so, Luther thought, how can anyone reach heaven? How can anyone be just? before God. While studying Romans 1.17 in the Latin text, the righteous shall live through faith, Luther discovered something unspeakably glorious. Indeed, as he sat by himself in that quiet library in his cloister in Wittenberg, by grace God gave him the key to unlock the door that leads to the unsearchable riches of salvation in Christ. And Luther later wrote about his experience. Quote, Then I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. This then in the meaning, the right this then is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel the passive righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, the righteous one lives by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of all Scripture showed itself to me. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway to heaven. Then I ran through the scripture as I could from memory, and I found an analogy in other terms too, such as the work of God, what God does in us, the power of God with which he makes us strong, the wisdom of God by which he makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God. End quote. So Luther comes to terms with the Bible's teaching that salvation is not something done by us or in us, but something done for us and outside of us by Jesus and his sinless life, atoning death, and hell-crushing resurrection. 
like a man with severely impaired vision who puts on prescription glasses for the first time, Luther saw everything from this new gospel perspective. He now understood that Christ, that in Christ, rather, our sin debt has been paid and a perfect righteousness has been imputed to us and is received through faith. Christ was condemned for us on the cursed tree that we might be rescued from hell. Salvation is a gift to unworthy sinners who by grace recognize their colossal need and cling to this loving Savior. Luther realized that his unfectung had been taken on by Christ on the cursed tree when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now in Christ, Luther could know God's sweet countenance and lasting peace. Like Paul writing to the Philippians, Luther could now say, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord and being found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Oh, what a glorious gospel this is. A gospel that we never graduate from. A gospel that we must keep central in the life and piety of our church as a congregation and as families and individuals. This gospel must never be assumed in our church, but rather this good news should be preached and taught with clarity and regularity and loved and appreciated. The gospel of justification, adoption, and sanctification through vital union with Christ must always be at the center of our worship, our, our catechesis, our discipleship, our piety, it must never be an afterthought. It must never be a footnote in our lives. The gospel must always be central. For Luther, the dark, mysterious, unreachable, unappeasable, and wrathful God became Abba Father through faith in Jesus. It was a gospel breakthrough that Luther wanted to share with the world and with the church. In the years leading up to 1517, a new and very worldly pope named Leo X rose to power. He needed to fill the empty treasury to pay for his lavish lifestyle and to finance his big plans for the consecration of St. Peter's Basilica. When we were in Rome uh, a few months ago, uh, a few of us went over to St. Peter's at night. It was closed up, but we walked into the square. And looking at it, it is an architectural sight to behold, but it is also something that is unappreciated uh, by someone who is a Protestant and in the Protestant and Reformed tradition because do you know what paid for those buildings? The sale of indulgences. The sale of salvation. The Pope had received a large sum of money from Albrecht of Mainz for giving him a papal dispensation that allowed Albrecht, against canon law, to hold three separate bishoprics. The Pope also raised money through the sale of indulgences. Indulgences were basically pieces of paper uh, with the Pope's seal that officially granted an individual or a relative a certain amount of relief in purgatory. Both Pope Leo X and Albrecht of Mainz created a program to sell indulgences and raise money for their plans and positions. One of the men they hired to sell the indulgences was the, was the infamous Dominican friar, Johann Tetzel. He was a wicked man 
using manipulation and scare tactics to sell salvation to the masses. When Tetzel set up his indulgence kiosk across from the Elbe River from Wittenberg, many of Luther's parishioners began purchasing them. This inspired Luther to write a series of theses challenging abuses and errors related to indulgences and other Catholic doctrines. These eventually became known as the what? The 95 Theses. And Luther nailed them to the Catholic Church door in Wittenberg. Luther then sent a copy to Albrecht of Mainz. Here you go. And Albrecht of Mainz, of course, sent the copy to the Pope. Luther had successfully picked a fight with Rome. The next three years for Luther were some of the busiest of his life. In May of 1518, Luther wrote and presented 28 theses in Heidelberg, Germany, at the Heidelberg Disputation. He showed the disparity between the theology of glory and the theology of the cross. I mentioned this in a sermon just a few uh, weeks ago. The theology of the cross, exalting man and his ability to save himself through his own wisdom and moral strivings, and the latter exalting Christ crucified and the salvation that comes solely by grace. Listen to Thesis 25 of the Heidelberg Disputation. It summarizes the theology of the cross well. Quote, He is not righteous who does much, but he who without work believes much in Christ. Don't you love that? He is not righteous who does much, but he who without work believes much in Christ. Of course, this talking about salvation and justification. Martin Bucer was in attendance at the Heidelberg Disputation, and some scholars believe this is where he was born again. So much we could say here. But after the dramatic encounter at the Diet of Worms in 1520, Charles V issued a royal edict that declared Luther an outlaw. He was no longer under any civil protection. His enemies could eliminate him without fear of reprisal, and they, they, his enemies were numerous and powerful. Think of it. Luther was excommunicated and declared a heretic by the church and pronounced an outlaw by the state. How in the world, if you were going to bet on whether or not he would live a long life, I think you would probably bet that he wouldn't. Refusing to sign the Edict of Worms and fearing for Luther's life, Frederick the Wise hatched a secret plan to kidnap Luther on his journey back to Wittenberg and to do so in such a way that people would wonder if he was dead or alive. Frederick wanted plausible deniability concerning Luther's location, and so he directed the kidnappers to keep his location secret even from him. They took him to one of Frederick's castles, the Wartburg Castle and the town of Eisnach. Interestingly, if you are ever in Eisnach, you can not only visit the Wartburg Castle and the rooms that Luther was in, but you can also visit the Bach House, where Johann Sebastian Bach grew up and hear period instruments. It's quite something. Luther stayed incognito in this castle for 11 months, assuming the name Junker George, or Knight George. He grew out his hair and his beard for cover. He was a Jesus freak from the early 70s, basically. That's what he looked like. He was not idle in his captivity, however. No, in fact, during this time, he translated Erasmus's newly published edition of the Greek New Testament into German. The first German edition of the New Testament was published on September 21st, 1522, and 5,000 copies were published and sold 
in the first two months. Not only did this edition help form the basis of the modern German language, but it put the living word of God into the hands of ordinary people. Luther came out of hiding and returned to Wittenberg when he found out that Karlstadt had embraced some radical positions and was orchestrating an iconoclastic revolution, the destruction of churches and such. Luther condemned Karlstadt's ways and his doctrine by preaching sermons that delegitimized his ministry and eventually sent him packing. You understand, during the days of the Protestant Reformation, there were all kinds of break-off groups that were doing radical things that Luther would not have endorsed. In the following years, Luther stayed very busy preaching, pastoring, writing, and teaching. In 1525, however, everything changed for Luther. He married a runaway nun. Interesting story. In a letter written to Wolfgang Reisenbusch on March 27, 1525, just two weeks before his own marriage, Luther greatly urged his friend and fellow monk to pursue marriage. Uh, he wrote a letter to him, which was printed in Wittenberg for the encouragement of a wider audience. Knowing that his friend had a girl in mind to marry, Anna Herzog, the daughter of a poor tailor's widow, Luther wrote, quote, Stop thinking about it and go to it right merrily. Your body demands it, God wills it, and drives you to it. There is nothing that you can do about it. For Luther, marriage between a man and a woman and sex within marriage was a part of what it means to be human. Luther writes, quote, It is a pity that men should be so stupid as to wonder that a man takes a wife or to be ashamed of it, end quote. You see, Luther was referring to a long-standing erroneous tradition on marriage within the Roman Catholic Church. The Church taught, first of all, that marriage was a good and noble thing, an institution created by God for procreation, and a sacrament through which grace was communicated, of course, making it another work by which a person could earn their salvation. Secondly, it was understood that vows of celibacy were superior to marriage, especially as they related to higher callings in the church, due to some erroneous teaching by early church fathers on the subject of concupiscence. I won't go into all of that, but there is, it's taught in the Roman Catholic Church even today that clergy are to remain unmarried and celibate. Of course, Luther and the Reformers rejected this corrupt teaching and sought to recover for the church a biblical understanding of marriage. Back in 1521, while in hiding out at the Wartburg Castle, Luther heard reports of many priests taking wives. Even his good friend Philip Melanchthon had gotten married. Initially, Luther didn't think that it would be good for him to get married, not because he was forbidden scripturally to do so, but because he was a hunted man. I could very likely go to the stake. He didn't want to marry only to leave a poor widow. Nevertheless, all the news of priests marrying inspired him to lay aside his translation of the New Testament and write his now famous treatise on Christian marriage. One of his friends commented that the book would effectually empty the cloisters. Well, Luther's teaching on marriage was not only read by priests, but also by nuns. In 1523, Luther received a letter asking for counsel from more than a dozen nuns who were eager to leave their convent near Wittenberg and pursue marriage. In 16th century Germany, escaping from your monastic cloister was a capital offense. Even so, Luther encouraged the nuns to leave the convent and even helped to orchestrate their escape. Indeed, he and, and his merchant friend, Leonard Kopp, devised a plan 
to smuggle them out of the cloister in pickled herring barrels. So the ladies arrived, but they didn't smell so good. One of Luther's students reported, quote, a wagon load of vestal virgins has come to town, all the more eager for marriage than for life. God grant them husbands, lest worse befall, unquote. Luther then played matchmaker in a big way, marrying off friends and students alike. But there was one nun, a peppy, energetic, smart, and resourceful woman named Katharina von Bora, who remained single. In fact, she turned down many offers of marriage and appeared to have her eyes set on Martin Luther. Friends and family encouraged it, and finally, not out of romantic love, but in his own words, he married Katie, quote, to please his father, to spite the pope and the devil, and to seal his witness before martyrdom, end quote. By the way, you single guys, if you ever get married, don't say that that's the reason you're getting married, okay? Martin was 41 years old and Katie was 26 when they wed. Of course, Luther's marriage scandalized him even more in the Roman Catholic Church as they charged Luther with orchestrating the entire Reformation so that he could unleash his sexual appetite. What began as duty for Luther, however, in this marriage blossomed into a wonderful, happy marriage. He grew to adore his wife. He once referred to the book of Galatians, a book that he loved, as his Katharina von Bora. He called her his beloved Katie. Luther's marriage and home life became a kind of archetype for, the, for Protestant marriage and families. Katie was the quintessential Proverbs 31 woman, hardworking, resourceful, practical, and well-respected. Now, take a deep breath when you hear this. She managed a household with 10 children. Four were adopted. She tended a garden, ran a farm, even slaughtering pigs, chickens, and cows. She ran a successful brewery, showed hospitality to a constant stream of students and guests from all over the world, managed the family income, and all while being married to argu arguably the most popular and most hated man in Europe. She was also a very forthright woman. She spoke her mind. She was exactly what Martin needed, even though sometimes he would tease her by calling her his Keta. She was Katie, of course, and he called her his Keta, which is a German word for chain, kind of play on words. She kept him in his place. One time, his neighbors and students were amused as Katie and Martin were hanging up diapers outside on clothespins to dry. And they were laughing at Martin Luther for doing this with his wife. And Luther said, let them laugh. God and the angels are smiling in heaven. Luther catechized his children with the very catechism that he produced, the catechism that I learned as a child, reciting those powerful words, quote, I believe in Jesus Christ, who, when I was lost and damned, saved me from all sin and death and the power of the devil, not with gold and silver, but with his own precious holy blood and his sinless suffering and death, that I might belong to him and live in his kingdom and serve him forever in goodness, sinlessness, and happiness, just as he has risen from the dead and lives and reigns forever. This is really so. End quote. Luther brought reformation not only to the church, but also to the marriage, 
the family and the home, capturing the pro popular Protestant imagination on how a marriage and family should function as a school of piety, a habitation of worship, a household where God and his word are believed and openly adored and not just assumed. He's not an afterthought. He's not a footnote. He is at the very center of marriage and family life. doesn't mean they weren't busy doing all kinds of things. I just mentioned so many of them. But it was all to the glory of God. And oh, dear friends, how we need a recovery of this godly Christian household in our day, in our homes, in our churches, as entertainment and cable television and digital technology and iPhones and social media and pornography have turned our homes into spiritual wastelands. There's something beautiful and right about the marriage and family life of the Luthers that should make us pause and evaluate our own marriages and homes and whether or not we are settling for less than God would have for us. Though the most stirring part of Luther's life took place between 1510 and 1525, the remaining 20 years or so of his life were not insignificant. During these years, Luther was busy in Wittenberg, mainly doing the work of a pastor, a professor, and an author. Of course, there were still lots of politically and ecclesiastical uh, things going on across Europe that Luther was involved in. When Luther first arrived in Wittenberg in 1508, there were only 2,000 residents. Luther called it in termino civilitatis, the edge of civilization. But Wittenberg was now a bustling town with a growing university and a booming publishing trade, one of the biggest in Europe. Things were changing. One can envision Luther's half-mile walk from one end of the dusty city to the other as he walked from the black cloister where his family lived to the, castle, to the castle church. There were two main streets. On either side of the street would have been market stalls selling all kinds of things. Perhaps the biggest trade was printing. As Wittenberg, with the close involvement of Luther, became one of the most illustrious publishing centers in all of Europe. In his phenomenal book, Brand Luther, Andrew Pedigree highlights this extraordinary aspect of Luther's legacy. Brand Luther, one of the best books on Luther I have ever read, in case you are interested. Well, due to time limitations, we're not going to be able to touch upon the peasant uprising of 1524, the Marburg Colloquy of 1529, the Augsburg Confession of 1530, and many other things in Luther's life. You can explore that on your own. For now, we must join Luther in his final days in 1546. He's been unwell for years, suffering from headaches, bowel obstructions, kidney stones, and heart problems. He was asked to travel to Eisleben by the magistrate there to arbitrate between two counts who were at odds with each other. His wife begged him not to go, but he felt compelled to help. On the cold, wintry journey, he became very ill and said, quote, if I make it back to Wittenberg, I will lay myself in my coffin to let maggots feast on the fat doctor. Unquote. He had a way with words, didn't he? <laughs> he wrote to his dear Katie, Should I die on this journey, God will care for you. It is his promise. Hold fast to God's word. He died in Eisleben, the town of his birth, 63 years earlier. Some of his last words were, we are beggars. This is true. 
Katie died six years later and on her deathbed declared, I cling to Christ like burr to cloth. The Luthers died as they lived, viewing themselves as beggars and burrs who cling to Christ, their Savior alone, for salvation. Martin Luther was buried in Wittenberg on February 22nd, 1546, not in a graveyard, but in front of the pulpit in the castle church. A constant reminder to all who visit the grave that he was a preacher not of himself, but of the unshakable word of Christ. A couple of words in conclusion. Some have asked over the last few years, is the Reformation over? Well, if you're talking about that historic Reformation that took about 60 years in the 16th century, yes, that's over in a sense, but is the Reformation over? No, it is not over. It is always happening because the church is always embracing error. The church is always giving in to cultural pressures. There are always reasons for reformation, for holding fast to the truth and bringing the church back uh, to uh, the gospel. And so the reformation is not over, and we must stand firm. The hammer blows upon the castle church door in Wittenberg still echo to this very day, and they They call us to stand firm, to not give in to erroneous doctrine. Second, we must have an unyielding commitment to the proclamation of the gospel and the making of mature disciples. Listen to this. In 1517, accounts show that 9,000 masses were said at the various altars in the Wittenberg church, and 40,000 candles were lit for the dead. Those who saw all the relics laid out on All Saints' Day would receive 1.9 million days of indulgence. Luther began preaching the word of God and the gospel, and all of this changed. All of this superstition and error and heresy was put aside and sent out of the church, and now the gospel was being proclaimed, the gospel of grace and freedom through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness that is not in ourselves, a righteousness that's outside of us that saves us from God's wrath and judgment, the righteousness of Christ. We need to be committed to this same disciple-making focus in the gospel. Paul wrote in Colossians 1, 28 and 29, Him we proclaim, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. And finally, we need to recover a biblical vision for the Christian family. Our culture, with its feminism, sexual confusion, entertainment, all of these things strikes against the Christian family. We need to boldly preach and teach a biblical view of marriage and sexuality to our children and our youth, We must nail these things to the church door, as it were, and be unashamed with the truth in a culture that may seek to shame us for our biblical convictions. Did you ever think you'd live in a day when a family is described as a mother and a father and children, and that is some kind of a great offense? Did you ever think you'd be in a day where the family is no longer understood in this way? Well, this is the day we live in the day of transgenderism, the day of so much confusion. 
And so we hold our convictions without wavering and with a heart of love, a heart of love for God, a heart of love for the lost, a heart of love for those who are confused and who need Christ. And so may that be true of our church and of our lives. We need reform. We need reform. Let us look to Christ and his word. Well, I hope that this has been uh, an encouraging time for you. Uh, Luther's life is so full. I want to recommend to you Heiko Obermann's biography, Luther, Man Between God and the Devil. Uh, I recommend to you Pedigree's a fairly recent, just a few years old book on Brand Luther, uh, how this dusty backwater town uh, became the center of publishing in uh, in 16th century Europe. There are other books as well I could recommend to you, uh, but read about Luther, especially in October where we're thinking about the Protestant Reformation. Let's think about these things. Let's read deeply in our heritage. It will spur you on and encourage you to stand firm and to appreciate what has been handed down to us as a Protestant and Reformed people.